It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am L. Joy Williams, your civics teacher and neighborhood political strategist. And first, let me say this. I know. I know. It's all it. I know it's it's dominating your TV, your radio. You don't even live there. You ain't got no people over there. Like is I mean, we we fought a whole war to get I, I, I know it's too much. It's going to be 24 seven. They're going to be covering it the whole time. We will not. But I just want to get out of the way. We know. And hopefully this is a reprieve from everything that's I know. It's, it's a lot. It's, it's too much when we're not even a terrorist. I get it. I get it. So I'm going to just start off by saying that, and that'll be the end of that. But <laughs> as usual, we are going to talk about civic, civic participation, elections, and every all the good stuff in between. And I know you know that there's an election coming up in November, and school is back in session, and people are getting right back into the groove of it. The political junkies like us, we've been doing, getting ready for this cycle, working in this cycle for a long time. And we assume that everybody is tuned in and paying attention. And we know as practitioners that you are not. But a lot of you, millions of you, will be tuned back in as of, you know, last week, this week. And so we are here to ensure that you have all of the information that you need in order to participate, re-engage, and to actually vote and then more right? Because we believe in voting and more civics beyond election day here on Sunday civics. But I want to bring my thoroughest girl and I have a new guest to bring in as well. But first, June like the month, Moses like the Bible. Hey, June. Hey, Aljoy Williams. Can we like pay attention to what like other people are doing? Like Bannon's in jail or something. There's so much other stuff to pay attention to and hand out. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the, I'm tired of the former president person too. Like literally our news, like our, our news cycles, like they only, it's like they only can pay attention to like three things at a time. That's the only, and it just goes a circle from there. Something else gets knocked out and they, whatever. It's only three things at a time. And just, you know, I've talked about it on the show before being exhausted. Now, I'm not saying this to say that I don't believe the former president and all his people need to be held accountable and the people, you know, that stormed the, yes, I believe everybody should do their job and continue to hold people accountable. I just would not like to have it be 24 seven talked about and like all of the 50 million, everybody got a new book coming out. I'm like, did you write this book in two weeks? Like, what? <laughs> like it's just, did you write so that much. while you were sitting there watching this trash go down and you opted not to say nothing, but say, or the, the people that got brand new conscious. I was like, sir, were you not the attorney general? Okay. <laughs> they just got God brand new conscience. Everyone. <laughs> Just going around like you were not a party too. You you was in the club, sir. <laughs> and you was in the drink. club. You used your drink tickets. Like we saw you, you. You were sneaking people in in the back. Like you were there. Like don't act like IG. Like we can still see. We can still see you, and we like we still know that you was like up in the club. Like 
that was your boy. So like, don't be out in the streets acting as if like, oh my God, I can't believe. Oh my pearls, my pearls. I'm clutching them, my pearls. The new pearl clutching is hilarious. But I will say, I will say one of the things that's interesting, as you know, I read a lot of books, history and things or whatever. And there is this comparison of what was talked about. Like, even if you go back 20, 40, you know, maybe even a hundred years, right. You can see what was written about, was talked about the books, the, the books on the subject at the time. And then comes out later that there was a discrepancy in terms of official records of things. And so one of the things I do think is necessary is as these folks are writing books in two weeks, <laughs> it is also important that we have people writing other accurate things, right? So that the source material will not be all from one side. And we can see that has happened even as most recently we talk about the Civil War, right? Like what are all of the source materials and the messaging and what is taught in the South and, you know, other places is because they created that lore. They created those source materials. And so it is important to create source materials that accurately reflect what is happening from first person narratives from all walks of life, not just those who were in the club. So with that said, you're saying I can write a book about my experiences living. I mean, I I think people particularly like given all that we've experienced in even in the past 10 years, I think it really is important to think about who is writing the source materials for their pieces. Are there people writing source material from the working class, the at poverty line and below? You know, I, I think about even as I'm immersed in homeless policy right now as we're dealing with this in New York City, who is writing the source material for people who experienced homelessness in this past decade? And not just the policymakers and others who are trying to get a handle on it, but like, you know, those are academic papers, right? Like who is writing the source material of what the experience was like in San Francisco, what the experience was like in New York City, what the experience is like in Philadelphia, living on the streets and and trying to navigate bureaucracy at this moment with a pandemic going on, with, you know, Trump and not, like with all of those things happening, And so I think about those things of who is writing those pieces so that future generations can learn from that and also not think that it was all, you know, peachy keen. So nice. Nice. Is that our homework? We have to start like structuring and writing books (laughs) now. Is that the homework we have from this from this class? Because Well, people who have the inclination in terms of writing and you don't have to be a professional writer. You can be a city worker. Like what is your experience working in a bureaucracy at this moment in trying to help people who are at the margins or not seen at all? You know, what is your experience as a general voter, as a, what is, you know, what it, what does your diary say, right? What does your journal say about these? These are all things that are source material. You know, I remember being very, you know, talking about Clutch and Pearls, like when, you know, when it was introduced to us when we were in school to read Anne Frank's diary, I was like, oh, we reading her, people going to read my diary? <laughs> <laughs> 
That's our personal information. Like, uh, you know. Did so, you know, that, willingly? How did you get it? Was like, how you, how you get her diary? Anyway, those kinds of things. So it is important from there. But I want to bring in our guest because I don't know if she has any comment about any of what I just said. But she's going to be with you. She's going to be with us the whole time yeah, from yeah. sister, our friends at sister district joining us at the front of the class is Lala. She's the co-founder and executive director of sister district. We've had sister district on before, which talking about how to build power and take over state legislatures because lots of people, you know, have been doing that for some time, but what has progressive power and the progressive movement done to ensure that we do that? They have over 60,000 members and a number of groups, over a hundred groups in 32 states and doing that work. Lala, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And I couldn't agree more. We have to tell our stories. It's such an important part of how we build this movement and how we build power. And if we don't tell them, then our voices will get drowned out by the people who are. And so I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Did you did you also have that moment when you like reading letters and reading source materials in school, and you were like, wait, how did y'all get this? <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. I, I definitely have always had this kind of imaginary reader, you know, even when I'm writing in my diary, and it makes me feel a little self-conscious sometimes. But I think that that's the, I try to put it out of my mind, because the point is, you know, if you can kind of take that out and just write and just say what you're thinking, then that I think is is um, is really key. So I, I love what you said. I think it makes me want to get a tape recorder and just go out and like record some oral histories now. You know, I'm like, who is going to tell the stories? How are we going to know, you know, how people lived today? Yeah. Yeah. So since this is your first time joining us at the front of the class, as we say, and talking about the power of sharing stories, I would love for you to share with us the story of your first civic action. Yeah. So the first civic action that I took was in high school when the Iraq war started and I went to a protest. Um, you know, that was the first time that I really felt like I was part of something bigger and that I felt really moved to, um, to, to be part of something and to make my voice heard. I, also, I'm going to take the liberty, since I have the mic, of talking about my daughter's first civic action. I took her when she was eight months old to her first march. It was a protest, um, bans off our bodies to protest when the Dobbs decision um, had been leaked. And I had a lot of mixed emotions taking her because, you know, she's just she's just a baby. But I was really excited that this was her first civic action. But I also felt really upset and sad that, you know, we needed to do this. And as we ended the march, the march was I live in San Francisco. We started downtown and then we marched towards the water and it was a beautiful day. You could see the bay glittering in the background behind the ferry building. And it was it was gorgeous. But I saw a sign that said, I marched with my mother. I never imagined I'd have to march with my daughter. And that just 
it just it it really really struck me and it reminded me why I do the work that I do and why I feel so grateful to be in community with so many others that are fighting every day to help expand our rights and to make it so that we live in a fairer world. Um, and, you know, we can't stop and we can take nothing for granted just because we thought that Roe v. Wade was passed and everything was okay. I mean, the fact is that uh, even before Dobbs, abortion was already very unequally distributed in terms of access, right? There, it was impossible, it was nearly impossible to get an abortion in many states even before the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And now that's just become even more exacerbated. So, you know, that's that's my my long answer, not just my own first civic engagement, but my daughter's as well. That is wonderful. And a number of people come on the show and talk about their first civic action being something with their parents, then barely being able to remember or handing out flyers when they were two or four or things like that. And it's really important to note that a number of people's first civic action is with their parents. And I argue that democracy is learned behavior that, and it's really something you can tie whether it's people who are active, who are organizers, who are civically engaged, that a lot of them did have, not all, but a lot of them did also have actively engaged parents. And that learned behavior of how to participate in your own governance, how to express yourself is really important and is really important for our society overall of the structure that we want to have in this country or anywhere in the world, if you happen to be listening all over. Mm -hmm. So thanks so much for sharing that. And I, you know, I'm imagining the adorable photo (laughs) that you will have in your journal that you will be able to show your daughter or that she will be able to show later in life of how she participated and engaged in that way. So that's great. So we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, Lala, I want to talk about Sister District's work in this election cycle, what you all have been up to. I think the last time we checked in with you, it was the presidential election. So there's lots of stuff I'm sure that you have to update us on from there. So we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk more with Lala Wu from Sister District. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. I'm Eljoy Williams. And joining me, we do have our thoroughest girl, June Moses. Hey, June. Hey, Eljoy Williams. I'm still here. (laughs) It's still here. And also from Sister District, Lala Wu is one of the co-founders of Sister Districts. We've had them on the show before. This was back, I think, the presidential election or maybe even before then. So it's been so it's been a while. But I'd love to hear if you can to talk to us about not only what Sister District has been up to over the past two years, but then also what you all are laying out for this midterm election cycle heading into November? 
Absolutely. And it's so great to be here. So Sister District, our exclusive goal is to build power in state legislatures. And we've been obsessed with state legislatures since we were founded in the wake of the 2016 election, because we understand the outsized impact that they have on every issue that we care about, from abortion to racial justice, to climate change, to education, guns, you name it. The list goes on and on. And how we build power at Sister District, we help to win urgent elections each cycle. And then we also, at the same time, help to build democratic infrastructure for the long term. So on the electoral side, we've got 60,000 or so members all across the country organized into local chapters, which are sister, like a sister cities concept with two to four state legislative candidates running in close winnable districts in key battleground states for support. And then our chapters will raise money, make phone calls, travel, go knock on doors, write postcards, all to help these candidates across the finish line and win. We have a really outsized impact that we're super proud of. And, you know, like in 2020, the last time we talked, perhaps we made an average of 34% of our candidates' phone calls and raised an average of 10% of their donations. And we're really looking to go super deep with these candidates, you know, also providing them professional support, helping their campaign staff too. And then on the infrastructure side, because we know that it's, we've got to win elections every year, but we also have to build power long-term. We also have programs to support lawmakers, the candidate pipeline, grassroots organizers in the states that we are supporting. We also have a research program, and then we also have a narrative building program to really talk about and lift up the importance of states and local in all of our lives. So, you know, what we're doing this year is we are laser focused, of course, on the midterms. We're focused on states that are democracy battlegrounds like Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, we're also smaller plays in Colorado and Texas and Washington state, where we've got a lot of work to do in all of these states. And what we're do trying to do every single year is flip a chamber, hold a chamber, or make inroads into badly gerrymandered states. That's the kind of portfolio that we build. And we are on the ground and running fast. We endorsed candidates back in the spring um, where we've had phone banks running for them, keeping people engaged uh, week after week, day after day. And folks have stuck with us, not, not only just this year, but we have some volunteers and some leaders who have been with us since the wake of the 2016 election when we were founded. So our, our whole idea is that, you know, you can take action maybe once or twice if you feel very motivated because of the issues. And that's absolutely right. But, uh, you know, one thing that we've found is really important is you, it really helps to do so with others, you know, in community. And that's how we can really um, make uh, make enduring change is if we do so in community with others. And so that's the attitude that we are taking. And that's the strategy that we're taking into the future as well. Because look, this is still going to be a really tough year for Democrats and progressives. And it's going to be, um, we're going against the odds because historically, of course, the president's party doesn't do down ballot um, in the midterms. And the polling is still pretty tight, even in, you know, uh, 
Biden plus uh, districts that went for Biden. So we can't take anything for granted. And we do know that, um, you know, whatever we do this year, we're going to have to build on it. We're it's not anywhere close to be, it's, we're not, we're not looking for mission accomplished and they might, that might not ever happen, right? Until the Republicans stop. Um, and they're certainly not going to. So we're taking this into next year and the year beyond that. We know that there's a lot to build uh, for as we head into the presidential in 2024. Even next year in 2023, there's really important state legislative elections happening in not only Virginia, but also Mississippi and Louisiana. And we are going to be in those states as well because these are overlooked places where a little bit can go a really long way. So we're really excited about that. And then, of course, just have our eye on 2030, which is the next opportunity we have for redistricting, um, you know, winning those elections that year and then being able to redistrict in 2031. So if that sounds like a long time away, it is and it's also not. Uh, you know, this is a long term project, as I know you talk about a lot here um, on Sunday Civics, and we just have to always stay engaged. Yeah. Staying engaged and staying up to date with information of what's going on, what's going on around you is really important. But, you know, one of the things I really like about Sister District is this importance of state legislatures, because a number of the things that we are shaking our fist at or mad about come from <laughs> state legislatures or states that are being managed by people who have very restrictive political ideology. So I'm not just going to say from a party perspective, I'm just saying overall, it just so happens that Republicans happen to embody that at the current moment. But, you know, th there's two, two questions I have that I wanted to engage you on. The first being, what, it, what is the profile or who are the people who make up sister district in terms of these because even you're talking about targeting state legislatures and local campaigns, there are local people who are volunteering their time and engaging in these actions, whether it's phone calls for campaigns or postcards or petitions and things of that nature. Who are the people that make up that cohort that do that work? I'm not just talking about y'all who work there. I'm talking about the people who yes. volunteer and engage in the chapters and the work that you all do on the ground. Yeah. The, the people that engage in this work and that do this work are like the listeners of this show, right? They're people who care about what happens in their government and what happens in their country. And it's folks who recognize that the their backyard extends beyond just their city or their state and that what happens in other states affects them as well. And so, you know, we've got a lot of volunteers in deeply blue places like San Francisco or New York or Chicago, where we are looking to channel that kind of perhaps excess energy and direct it to where it's super strategic in swing states in close winnable districts, being really surgical and precise in our targeting so that every year, for example, the vast majority of our resources uh, go to races that are really close. But, you know, we also have a really strong emphasis on recruiting local volunteers. And so when our volunteers are calling voters in our endorsed candidates districts, 
we always make sure that the scripts, once you've identified they're a supporter, you ask, hey, do you want to volunteer with this local campaign? And a lot of times they say, yes, we've already recruited something like 9,000 volunteers for our local campaigns on the ground. And this is strengthening the infrastructure, the work that's happening as local as can be, as proximate as can be to these races that are so critical for us to win. And throughout all of it, uh, I, you know, we've got all kinds of people, um, uh, all races, genders, ages. What I see a lot of is I see a lot of women. <laughs> there are a lot of women who get involved. I'm not saying men don't. There's a lot of really wonderful men who get involved with us as well. Uh, but I mean, I really just have to give a shout out to all, all the, all the women who get involved, who really see that there's action to be taken, and then they get it done. I love that. And I particularly love the part about recruiting local people that people are interested in because one of the misconceptions is that people don't want to volunteer. People don't want to participate in these actions. And is it a hundred percent of people? No, but there are people who are like, Oh, no one's ever asked me that before. Sure. I can, I can like, I can help out. I could like, I could exactly. do something. I can, is, is it doing what you're doing? Calling me right now? I could do that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, so the, the question of asking people to participate, asking them to volunteer and contribute. Yeah. You're going to, as someone who is experienced and I still do call time, still do calls and everything. And there's a lot of people hanging up. There's a lot of people engaged, but there are also a lot of people who are like, yeah, I'm not doing nothing. I got you. <laughs> you yeah. know, like they'll, 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 they'll show up, right? They'll come. And it's something about connecting people to that local action. Mm -hmm. I always argue that quite often people get in politics and they want to get people involved in the big thing, the presidential election yeah. mm -hmm. and, you know, beating the Republicans, which sound like big, lofty you know, goals. But if you drill it down and engage people in local actions first, right, they'll be able to see some concrete measures of their input, right? Oh, I'm volunteering. I'm making calls. This is, it ends up being, we're, we're making like a third of the calls for this candidate. Like, this is awesome, right? Like, you know, you'll, you're being a, taking ownership of things. And so I, I'm advocating for those of you who are listening, who are even activists, right, to make these asks that were people who are stepping up to volunteer to make them small enough that they are achievable for people. Do you find that to be a, a success for the volunteers that come through six Sister District? Yeah, absolutely. And people get involved for so many reasons and in so many ways and with so many different entry points. And I think our job as a, uh, a organization that looks to engage people civically is to provide a lot of entry points, right? So if you're ready to jump into phone banking, that's awesome. But a lot of people, they find that a little intimidating, which is totally understandable. So, you know, we might bring them in first, like, hey, the postcard um, at the beginning, and then you can work your way up, right? You can start with the postcards, you can get comfortable with the group of people that you're writing postcards with, but then, hey, what's the next step up on the ladder of engagement? Maybe that's actually having a live conversation with somebody on the phone. Um, and so we provide lots of great training, helping to make people feel comfortable, and then also just explain that if it's not 
you, it's not going to get done, right? This is this is everything that volunteers in particular do, especially on these small campaigns, is so additive and so important and really just tremendously valued. And you know what? These races can be really close and really tiny. I mean, sometimes for these races, just a few thousand people end up voting in general, right? And so just uh, if you are able to talk to a few folks, help them uh, learn the name of the candidate or help them make a plan to vote or let them know where the polling location is, that can feel really, really good, especially if the outcome at the end of the day is that they just won by 94 votes or something like that, right? You can really feel like you made a difference. And at Sister District, we try really hard to pick these close winnable races. And like last year in 2021, when we were in Virginia, we supported 12 candidates and five of them were decided by 821 votes or fewer, right? And that's just, it's a, these, these are tiny, tiny margins. And so the volunteer work that, um, that folks do is really important. Shout out to the volunteers for those of you who make calls and do postcards and stuff envelopes and, you know, walk the streets. We certainly appreciate you. And if you're thinking about volunteering, those are the kinds of activities that can really make a difference. Lila, you're talking about state legislative races that are won by these small margins. And it makes me think about here in New York where we just had, well, we had split primaries because of redistricting. But even in those cases where you had only 7,000 or 3,000 in some places showing up to vote in general because it was an election day nobody was used to, and people were winning with less than 50 votes, right? Um, within, you know, so it's just like, oh, I got fit. But, you know, in a winner take all system, you know, that's what happens. And so it really is getting that 50 plus one. And so making those small investments, particularly in state legislative races that then have control, because let's talk about what state legislatures control, why they're important. (laughs) They control everything. I mean, really, I argue that state legislatures have more control or more influence over your daily life than the president does. I mean, the state legislatures decide every issue that we care about, from abortion, guns, uh, criminal uh, legal system reform, uh, marijuana, uh, education, climate, etc. These are all issues, every issue except for maybe immigration or like foreign policy. And even immigration, actually, the state policies have a lot um, to say there as well. So really, it's pretty much any issue that you can conceive of really is uh, implemented. And the key decisions in terms of policy are made at the state legislative level. And so if we, I would also say, there are some pieces that are just fundamental to democracy, right? We think about Uh, all of the voter suppression that has been happening in the past few years, those are all state laws. I mean, you think back to Jim Crow, all of those were state laws, right? And Jim Crow wasn't just, uh, it didn't come into fruition with like the stroke of a federal pen. There wasn't a federal law that said, oh, Jim Crow is in effect. Jim Crow came into effect because state by state, states enacted these racist policies that prevented citizens from being able to vote. And so what we're seeing, as Stacey Abrams called it, you know, the Georgia voter suppression law, this is Jim Crow 2.0, that 
there is, I'm not going to say which party, but you know, there is a party that's very enthusiastic about suppressing the votes of people of color. Oh no, we can name and shame. We <laughs> Like I have no problem calling out parties when they get like if, right now, you know, the reason why, and I describe this as this way, the reason why I am a Democrat now, right. Is because and I tell people, don't get so embodied in your political, you know, like your political label, your ideological label, that it doesn't represent your values, right? Mm -hmm. So if my one of my core values is about greater voter empowerment, mm -hmm. I cannot align myself and be in the same political party as Republicans mm -hmm. who have consistently, both from the local level the state level and the federal level have indicated that that is not a value that they hold. <laughs> Sorry. Right yeah, now, if you exactly. had something like now, do I have other values that can be perceived as conservative or, you know, typically Republican? Maybe. I don't think so that much anymore because of <laughs> the way the party is now. Right. But I, I identify as a Democrat now or I vote as a Democrat now because that is the party that most represents right now my values and my interests. If I was living in 1932, it might be different, but I'm not. I'm living in 2022. And <laughs> these are the parties that are within that are before us. And it is consistent from every level of government that people who identify legislators who identify as Republican are introducing and spearheading legislation that is more restrictive for voters. And I just simply can't align with that. So, you know, we don't have to have the, you know, I know in some other <laughs> networks and others that they, you know, have to toe the like nonpartisan thing. <laughs> but like the, the fact, I started this to talk about the facts of the facts. Now, if 10 years from now, Republicans end up being like the stalwarts for like expanding voter, you know, voter sure. engagement stuff. All right, cool. That's, That's not right. the case right this moment. And we're not yeah. talking about Lincoln. We're not talking about none of them. <laughs> we're about 22. And that happens to be that. That's right. And that's what we're talking about is our values, right? And which, and how do we get our values enacted into policy so that we can actually live the lives that we want to and deserve to live? And uh, what we need to do is to focus our attention not so much at the federal level, which has been overinvested in by Democrats and progressives, but you know we need to look at what Republicans have been doing. They've been building power strategically at all levels of government, but particularly at the state and local levels for the past 50, 100 years, right? And so we have a lot of catching up to do, but it is definitely possible. And yeah. I just think that you know, there's so much good news that can come from states like Look, Virginia, when it gained a Democratic trifecta in 2019 with our help and the help of many other organizations, that was the first time in over 20 years, a generation that Democrats had been in control. And look what they were able to accomplish. I mean, when the federal government was and still is in a stalemate when it comes to voting rights, they passed their own Voting Rights Act. They were able to legalize uh, recreational marijuana. They were able to be the first state in the South to uh, abolish the death penalty. And the list just goes on and on and on. There's so many things that we would be able to do if we had control at the state level. So, you know, we have to look for those opportunities to uh, 
uh, flip chambers so that we can be in the majority. Um, and where those opportunities are not yet ready, we need to build towards and set ourselves up for the future where we can flip all these chambers, and then we can get the policies that we want. Um, but you know, there's also work that we can do in the meantime, even if we're not in power. And one of our programs supports lawmakers in frontline purple districts uh, to really help them think about, hey, even if I am a legislator in a state like Wisconsin that, you know, statewide, there's a Democrat, um, a governor, Democratic governor at the top, but the state legislature is so badly gerrymandered that Republicans are way overrepresented. You know, what are the strategies? What can we do to build power? Maybe make Republicans take positions they don't want to take. Uh, maybe introduce some legislation that's not going to pass, but, you know, helps to move the um, move the needle and move the conversation over. You know, how can we uh, how can we build power even if we're not in the majority? And that's what we're thinking about because the stakes are so incredibly high in state legislatures. Absolutely. We're going to take our last break and then wrap up here. We could talk all day. <laughs> we'll take our last break. And then when we come back, some of those states that are your focus, there are some ballot measures that can also be mobilizing to get people to the polls. So we'll talk a bit about that when we come right back. Welcome back to Sunday Civics. It's our final few minutes here. But Lala from Sister District, one of the co-founders of Sister District, is with us. And we've been talking a lot about the power of state legislatures, some of which who are also having elections this election cycle. Some of them are competitive, some of them not, but it doesn't matter. You still show up and vote what's on your ballot. And in addition to Congress, U.S. Senate, and a number of other local races like the state legislatures we're talking about, some of you may go to vote and there will be a ballot measure on your ballot. That is a question, a referendum or something that is asking you a question as to whether or not you want this thing implemented. So Lala, one of the states that you mentioned, Arizona, Arizona has a number of ballot measures that will be on the ballot, particularly as it pertains to future ballot <laughs> initiatives, one of which is whether or not you agree that you need a 60% supermajority in order to pass ballot initiatives. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We know what that's about. <laughs> and also to ensure that uh, former future ballot initiatives that are the same subject, so single subject ballot measures. Now this can or cannot be useful because we've seen a lot of times in the past where ballot initiatives, it'll be like, 18 things and then it'll be like one sentence on the ballot and you're like well i agree with two of them but not the rest yeah. of them <laughs> so that <laughs> might be a streamlined situation but are you aware of any other ballot initiatives that have come across your news or come across for some of your members yeah, absolutely. There is a really exciting one that is coming up in Michigan, for example, that's been submitted and looks on track to be submitted to the voters. And that's to protect abortion um, and to enshrine it as a right, um, you know, explicitly in the constitution of that state. And 
I think that what we can see is there's a lot of momentum behind it. Something like it, it was submitted with something like over 700,000 signatures, which is a really record breaking number. So that's one to watch and really exciting to, to see the momentum that has built up after Dobbs uh, came down. Yeah. Also in Nevada, um, there's some on the minimum wage, increasing the minimum wage on an equality act. Oregon is trying to abolish slavery. And so, and so that will actually allow the state to have judges in that state do alternatives to incarceration. South Dakota is trying to expand Medicaid via a ballot measure. Tennessee is also trying to do a right to work and abolishing slavery. So a lot of referendums about abolishing slavery and having alternatives to incarceration are on the ballot as well. These are all things that if you're looking for ways to mobilize people to engage them on voting, participating in the process overall. Maybe you may not have a competitive race, but some of these ballot measures can also be something that you can use to galvanize people to turn out. Yeah, absolutely. And Kansas was a really great example of that. I mean, it didn't turn out the way that I think the proponents had intended for it to turn out. But, you know, there was a ballot measure there to try to uh, eliminate the constitutional a right to abortion in that state um, from their state constitution, and it failed dramatically. Um, and that was a huge upset, which was, uh, which, which I mean, amazing work to the organizers there who had to overcome a lot of myths and disinformation about what the what the measure was about. Um, and then I just wanted to flag that there isn't one on um, this year's ballot, but you know, for the future, hopefully we'll see more ballot measures trying to get independent redistricting commissions. I mean, gerrymandering is a massive problem in this country, and it means that there's really unfair and disproportionate representation, uh, and it leads to extremism and extreme policy by, um, by, uh, uh, by the, by Republicans in particular. Um, and uh, But one thing that's on the horizon for any legal nerds out there is that the Supreme Court has decided to take up Moore versus Harper, which is going to decide the independent state legislature theory. And that could give state legislatures, this fringe far-right legal theory, give state legislatures complete control over all things federal elections, including potentially eliminating the possibility for independent redistricting commissions at all. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's other things too, for example, in an extreme version of this uh, uh, theory, you could even have state legislatures overturning the will of the people and submitting their own presidential electors instead of following the will of the people. Yeah, (laughs) that can be, yeah, that can be damaging as well. But it's all, as we're saying, in terms of being able to make sure that we have the right people in elected leadership at, on, at, in state legislatures, in governor's mansions, in Congress, in Senate, in the White House, in order to be able to ensure that we are providing protections for folks, that we are advancing as a society and not uh, (laughs) basically going back to a place that people felt more comfortable because it was less of color. And that's really what it's all about. So Lala, thank you so very much for joining us on Sunday Civics. We hope to have you back. Hopefully we won't have this long break between us and Sun- uh, Sister District <laughs> going forward. But thank you so very much for joining us. And how can people, if they are interested in volunteering or being engaged Sister District, what can they do? 
Yeah, please check us out, sisterdistrict.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter. We're all the places. So come join in. We've got amazing, super fun phone banks, some really cool guests uh, coming to join us as well. So come check us out. We'd love to have you. Thank you so much. And thank you, Lala, for joining us. Hope you have a great midterm season. We'll all be tired after we'll, we'll all be tired after this, but hopefully it will all be worth it going forward and going into 2030, as you mentioned. Thanks so much. That's right. Thank you. So June, with all of that, thank you so much for rocking with us. Thanks to all of you who got to hear some great lessons over the August break. We are back in full effect because election day is what? 59, 65. It's coming up soon. (laughs) Coming up very soon. So you need to be engaged on your calendar right now, put November 8th, but then I'm sure you have early vote. And if you don't have early vote yet, holler at me on social media. Maybe that's a ballot measure you need to put on your ballot for next election and cycle. And if you have well. it, please show up. Stop breaking my heart. I don't want to stand there alone. Come be with me. We got <laughs> nine whole days. Let's go. Well, thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to Sunday Civics here on Sirius XM Urban View. We'll be back next Sunday with more information and tools that you can use to get civically engaged. Have a good one.